Is witchcraft the solution to all of your problems? Do you know where your EpiPen is? How many items of clothing do people in your cult own? Find out all this and more on this episode of How to Survive Horror Movies. Hello and welcome to episode three of this podcast that is currently called How to Survive Horror Movies with Mikia Ferguson and the learned man Toby Hewitt. Hello. And I say currently called How to Survive Horror Movies because I did zero research prior to starting this podcast <laughs> because I started it as a laugh and as an excuse to talk to mm. Tobes and drink red wine and... It turns out there is another podcast out there called How to Survive a Horror Movie, made by an American. And as we know, Americans sue people. (laughs) We had a brief discussion about this midweek, Tobes, where we thought we could start beef. I fancy our chances. Or we could just avoid the whole horrible situation early doors and just be the more mature and sensible people and change the name of the pod. Yeah. Which we are going to do. We've got a couple of ideas. If you have any ideas of what you think we should call this podcast moving forward, <laughs> get in touch. First point of call, Toby, then mm-hmm. today is how do we survive a podcast gang war? That's a really good question. I'm going to stick with my answer to every question so far. Get leathered up, get on a motorbike, drive to where they are, and then ask them really politely if you can work it out somehow. I think what I would do is I would get a uh, an empty beer bottle on each of my fingers, and then I would clink them together, and then I would say, Warriors, come out to play. Which will make no sense if you haven't seen the film, The Warriors. When they discover our podcast, they obviously will sue us for everything yeah. we are worth. It's not a lot, to be fair. It's not a lot. <laughs> a rice cooker. I mean, we don't make any money out of this podcast. <laughs> you want a new rice cooker. Yeah. I need to buy a new oven. My oven's broken. <laughs> but I will send out a, a warning to rival podcasters. If you do mm. want to challenge and tackle us, we've quite clearly not got a lot to lose. We could be crazy and dangerous with bottles on the end of our fingers, recreating scenes from... No worry. From films you haven't seen. <laughs> Ours is better. I've not listened to a single word Neither of their podcast. And I completely agree with you. And I'm not going to listen to it because <laughs> why would I want to support the rival now that we've got beef? Yeah. I, I, only, I only react to hearsay messages and abstract information that gets passed on through sources that mm. can't be verified. Like a witch. Like a witch. Mm. In fact... I am starting to believe some of the powers of the paranormal from watching these films, and I'm actually learning a lot, so getting into witchcraft could be another defence that we go down. I think that would be really good for you. This could be a really long setup to our own horror movie, whereby (laughs) they then have to do a podcast on how to survive us as horror movie characters. And it could be called How to Survive, How to Survive Horror Movies. I've forgotten which which one we are. (laughs) If you had to be a horror movie character mm-hmm. to fight in this war of the podcasts, oh, okay. which horror movie character would you go for? Oh, that's a good one. So essentially who's going to be the most powerful in this situation for a, for a scrap? That's a really good yeah. question. And there are two that spring to mind immediately. One is Pinhead from Hellraiser, because, or any Cenobite from Hellraiser, because you could just take them straight to hell and then leave them there. 
So that will be effective. Or if you wanted to have fun with it, Ash from the Evil Dead with his chainsaw around. It's a strange one because you kind of got a way up. Like, do I want to just be badass and cool and mm-hmm. feared, or do I want to be effective? That's it. And yeah. so, you know, Slender Man could be a laugh for a while. Yeah. You know, it's not not necessarily going to be the most effective. And then what are you going to do with the rest of your life after that? You'd have to go and muddle for Fred Perry. Ultimately, the character I would really want to be is not a horror movie character at all, but I would want to be the Undertaker, the wrestler. <laughs> I think that counts. I think he's, he's aesthetically close enough that we'll claim him as a horror film. And I'll be Paul Bearer. But then me and you would have to have a big fallout and you'd have to try oh, and kill yeah. me at some point. Yeah, that's true. And I also don't want to take an urn on a plane. I mean, this week we did spend some time sharing wrestling profile cards with each other. <laughs> they were incredible. We found line, they were incredible. Which were incredible. And the different incarnations of The Undertaker was a particular highlight of that for me. Each one of them had like one... They, they were obviously all doing it in character and it was done for laughs and it was it was kind of funny. Then they always had one that just didn't fit with their personality at all, that just seemed like they'd answered the question, really, honestly. So with Stone Cold, it was his favourite film, and it was In Cold Blood. That was that was the answer. There was no gag. Just really likes In Cold Blood. If you get a chance, look up WWF wrestler profiles yeah. online, because they are absolutely superb, particularly from the 90s. favourite of all of them was, was it the Stone Cold one, and it was favourite cartoon character, Shawn Michaels. And he was really misogynistic on his own. Oh, well. really? Yeah. He laughs at homeless people. That was part of it. <laughs> yeah, that was his hobby. <laughs> That's his hobby, driving around laughing at homeless people. But he really likes in cold blood. I don't know whether it'd be I would become them or have them as an ally, like a Yu-Gi-Oh card that I could play at any yeah. any moment. Yeah, that's cooler, actually. Yeah, if you could have a horror... Let us know if you had one horror movie character that you could be in control of and play at any moment, who would it be? Yeah, and feel free to go Pokemon style and just pick six. Who would your yeah. squad be? Who would you, yeah, your deck. <laughs> yeah, your deck of cards. Uh, yeah, you've got to collect them all, man. So this week we watched Hereditary in 2018 film we tried to switch this up each episode so that we're looking at a different kind of horror movie so we did slasher movie first with halloween then we did wreck for kind of a zombie apocalypse movie this this week we went for hereditary for more ghost possession style Mm. type film a little bit more psychological red wine of choice this week was a lovely san juan bottle of malbec from argentina very nice there were Five instances where it went, where 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 it got spilt. Go on, what were they? Bird flies into window. Yeah. Annie driving and she hears a tongue click sound. Yeah. Seance cabinet glass smash. Of course. Peter gets grabbed in bed. Yeah. And then Annie rushes Peter. Yeah. If you've seen this film, some of those moments probably make sense. If not, they will make sense to you very soon. Yeah. It it was a sippy cup type film. What a sippy cup is, if you don't know, is uh, my girlfriend has a, a special cup with a lid on that's particularly for toddlers that if it's a really bad film or there's been too many spillages, she will sometimes make me put 
glasses of red wine in the sippy cup. That's a really good idea. This film also gets a dream mark for me because I watched it far too late at night and then I just had loads of dreams about being in all of these situations that happened in that film. Me too. It always gives me very, very odd dreams. There were dreams where I was being chased, but there were also dreams where I was waking up and seeing things and then I couldn't Mm. figure out if I was asleep or not and whether I was dreaming, which is ironically something that happens in the film. Yeah. It's quite um, a gory film as well. Well, not not constantly gory. No. Not, not like Wreck in terms of lots of, you know, big wounds being mm. inflicted of it. But there are probably three or four really kind of stomach-turning gore yeah. moments. It's particularly shocking more than it is gory. It's kind of shocking for different reasons. It's not just about the gore. There's always an extra thing to make you feel uncomfortable and unwell. Hereditary, what, what were your first thoughts of it? So the, I have to think about the first time I saw this. It was the first thing I'd seen by um, Ari Aster, the director, um, and I've since become pretty obsessed with him. It completely blew my mind. I, I loved the way that it was shot. Was I think the first thing I noticed. It's shot like a Hitchcock film, but it's, yep. the content is very much not like a Hitchcock film. Um, I loved that framing device of the miniature houses. That really terrified me, and I'm not sure why. I haven't really dug into that too much. It just seems so artfully put together. And then the the moment where he kills off the, the little girl, I thought, this is going to some places that I didn't fully expect. And then it continues in that direction of things you probably wouldn't be able to predict. And yeah, I like I like any film that goes to a place I'm not expecting it to and does it in such a sophisticated controlled way and yeah I, I love it it just blew my mind i remember being and this will sound a bit weird but just kind of coming out grinning like that guy like the blonde guy i had my clothes on there but yeah just uh, really happy that um someone had made this film i really enjoyed the way it turned because i was i'd, I'd not seen this film before mm. i had heard of this film but i didn't look up the plot or synopsis of a buyer or anything so i was just fully expecting standard ghost possession horror movie yeah and it just went in so many different directions it was great you mentioned about the dollhouses and that's the first thing i kind of wrote down and noticed because arguably the main character in the film annie the mother a lot is uh, centered around her and it's all kind of about her relationships and it's her family and she's very much the matriarch of the family and it's about her breaking down and she's this weird creepy doll artist so she makes like miniature houses and doll Mm -hmm. things and it's all about her creating these models that are going to be in a gallery somewhere and as soon as I saw that I was just starting to expect the dolls to move at points in the film I thought we've got to keep referencing this yeah in a weird way, she, it does happen because she creates these horrific little miniature figurines yeah. of incidents that have just happened. Yes. And it's clearly her way of dealing with it. Yeah. And rather than them moving on their own accord, the fact that she's doing it and she's creating that is more disturbing. I totally I agree. I completely agree. Um, I think, yeah, what a great way to give us insight into a really terrifying mind. Um, and I think there's... I think there's three moments that really disturb me with the miniatures. The first is she tells the story about how her mother um, was really possessive over um, over the girl, the little girl. Charlie. Yes, thank you, over Charlie. And then we see from one of these little houses that it was the grandmother that was breastfeeding her. 
Yeah. Ooh, that's a bit much. That is actually really, really deeply odd. And it's a nice kind of one-two punch from having it referenced in the dialogue and not seeming that weird and then seeing the kind of insight into her weird memory of it. The second one that really bothers me is when, of course, when she does the accident and it's that huge pole where the girl's head has come off. It's just enlarged to like... Um, ridiculous proportions and then the last one that really bothers me is of course the the one of her son in his room and his head's off i don't know why miniature things like that are, are disturbing in a way i suppose it's because you're kind of getting an insight into what is coming or what could be and That's it's it, almost yeah. like a foreshadowing of well it, yeah absolutely that is that is the word to use and i think it makes because they're miniatures of them and we're looking at them and they're so small and vulnerable it heightens that sense of vulnerability for the actual characters themselves because we're kind of watching them in a model house anyway. That's sort of what the, what a film is. It's kind of what fiction is, isn't it? We're just watching these little people in this tiny little house and there's nothing that they can really do about all of the awful things that are about to happen to them. So, yeah, I think it works, as, as you said, as foreshadowing really nicely. It gives it that sense of inevitability, right? this is all going to go wrong. So we've got Annie, who's the mum in this house. We've got her husband, Steve, mm. the daughter, Charlie, who's 13, and the son, Peter, who's 16. And it starts with the grandmother, so Annie's mother, dying. Mm. And she's really secretive, we find out, when she's doing the eulogy at the funeral. It's all a little bit strange. There's some strange-looking people at the funeral. Yeah. And we very quickly established that Charlie has a nut allergy mm-hmm. because she eats some chocolate and they immediately say, has it got nuts in it? And she's a little bit odd. She's a little bit strange. So you're immediately thinking that Charlie has got Asperger's or a form of autism. Mm-hmm. The funeral goes out of the way and there's the a creepy blonde guy who gives her a really creepy smile at the funeral. Yeah. And I was immediately thinking, well, there's a predator. Yeah. get through the funeral and very quickly steve the husband gets a phone call a couple of days later to say that the grandmother's grave has been desecrated the full body of the grandmother had been removed yeah why were the police not involved that's a really good question I, i mean i suppose we don't know that they weren't i guess we just never see any police investigation or interview. Yeah. They're just not in the film at all. There's no figures of any authority or help anywhere. Maybe that's done yeah. deliberately, that there's literally no one to come and help these people. Yeah. I think I'd get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit confused as to why the police didn't get involved. Yeah, that's a fair point. And very quickly we get Annie and Charlie having apparitions of her mother or grandmother, Mm. in the house. Annie sees her in the workshop. Yeah. And then a little bit later on, Charlie sees her in a field. Yeah. Um, How did you feel about this? Because the first one really bothers me when she just sees her mother in the workspace. And I'm not sure why, because I'm not usually bothered by ghostly apparitions in films, but there's something about it that seems so dreamlike. I don't know if it's the the colour palette or the way that they've shot it. But it bothers me. This is a state that we get quite a lot in the film, though, with versions of whether Annie is asleep or not. Yes. We get quite a close-up of the necklace that Annie's mother's wearing. 
yeah. uh, when she's been buried. So we, we kind of know that that's going to become a focal yes. point in the film. Yeah. But it's not long after this, actually, that we get this great story that Annie, Annie tells. She's um, sleepwalking and she covers both her children in paint yes. thinner and wakes herself up lighting the match, which also wakes her son up. And she's just really blasé about it. Like, yeah. I clearly, obviously, I put the match straight out. Like, I clearly wasn't going to burn them all and set them all on fire. How, how dare you suggest that? Yeah, and it's terrifying. But I, this, this bit does really bother me, but it kind of makes me laugh as well, just because of the absurdity of it. It's, it's the fact that the, the, the setup to it is Joni, so she's at Joni's house, isn't it? And Joni says, how's Peter or how's your son? And she obviously means since the accident that, you know, he was, he was heavily involved in. How is he since that? And then Annie's response is, when he was a little boy, I covered him in paint thinner and tried to set him on fire. The question and the answer don't add up at all, and that really scares me. She just suddenly needs to blurt out that she tried to kill him. I would have a strained relationship with my mother if she had done that. So we get this other side of Annie's story coming through when she goes to a grievance counsel, uh, a grief counselling meeting and she talks about her family history. She just blurts it all out. She feels like she's got a hell of a lot stashed away and she's like got a history of mental illness. And she reveals then that she didn't let her mother anywhere near the firstborn, Peter, but she then felt bad, so let her get really close to the second-born, Charlie. And we also get little glimpses that the grandmother wanted Charlie to be a boy. Yes. She knitted him a little tea cosy thing that said Charles on it rather than Charlie. And Charlie also talks about how grandma wanted her to be a boy. Yeah. We also get this idea that the mother is still around because her bedroom door keeps being open and people keep saying, oh, mm-hmm. no one's been in there. No, that door's never open. It's always shut. So we get this idea that there's a presence in the mm-hmm. in the house. We also get to see a little bit of Charlie and what Charlie's about with these clear traits of having Asperger's or some form of autism. So she's at school and a bird, she gets a little bit angry and then a bird flies directly into the window, effectively killing itself. Well, not effectively, it does kill itself. She then takes some scissors from the teacher's desk and at break time cuts the head off that bird all while she's being watched from a distance by someone who we're not sure who is, but who they are. And then kind of it just nulls around a bit, creating this idea of the presence of the mother being around and these apparitions until we get to the crux of where the film really just starts kicking off, Hmm. which is where Peter, who is a 16-year-old standard stoner, and... He's going to a party. He says it's a school thing. It's clearly a party. His mother isn't stupid. No, she knows. Yeah, because she talks about being a party at one point as well. And is he drinking? So he's going to drive to this party. Annie forces Peter to take Charlie, who is 13 years old, to a party where she suspects there's going to be drinking and she knows it's a party. When I was 16 and starting to go to house parties, there was never any suggestion that I would be taking my sister to them. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, it is fucked up. It's a weird thing to ask him to do. So my big sister is, is six years older than me, so she definitely wasn't trying to take me with her when she was 18 and I was 12. <laughs> but that's kind of the age gap here, actually, now that I think about it. That is the kind of Charlie Peter age gap. There's definitely an age where you can start going off to parties and things like that and an age where you're still too young. Maybe, yeah, 
she's clearly, but she's not just a baby. She, like you said, she obviously needs to a certain extent to be looked out for and looked after by someone, especially in a situation like that. And you know it's not going to happen if your 16-year-old son is going to, to get drunk and meet girls. The mother, at that point, Annie, and they do suggest this later on, Peter challenges her on it mm. after the events of what happens following the party. But, he, you know, she and Charlie doesn't want to go to the party. No, she doesn't. Annie just wants to kind of get rid of her for a yeah. bit. She doesn't want to have the responsibility yeah. of looking after her and makes a terrible decision by letting her go to this, this party with her 16-year-old brother. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's her responsibility that what happens, happens. Something like that was always going to happen. And we kind of get an idea that something grim is going to happen, but we don't know what at the party because when they're driving to it we see this telegraph pole this yeah. post with a, the symbol carved on it that was the same symbol that the grandmother had on the necklace yeah we get to the party and peter goes off for a smoke because like i say he's a big smoker we see somebody chopping nuts in the kitchen mm-hmm. we can put two and two together already charlie wants to go and get some cake well, she doesn't want to do anything. She doesn't want to leave Peter, but Peter's trying to get it off with some girl. He wants to go have a smoke. So he tells her to go and get some cake. She goes and eats cake, and then she goes into a massive anaphylactic shock. And this was where I got annoyed at the film for being slightly too unrealistic. Okay. And they could have easily fixed this, yeah. in my opinion. She didn't have an EpiPen. If you're that allergic to nuts, you would have an EpiPen. Yes. But this makes me blame Annie even more, is my response to that. It's like, you've not even gone and made sure. Because, again, you see that she's not the best decision maker, this girl. You would go and be like, have you got an EpiPen? Have, you know, are you sorted? You'd go and ask questions and make sure she was okay. But just dismissing both and moving on, that's what sets it up. That's the decision that puts it in motion. And Peter should have a spare if she's that allergic he to should. nuts. Yeah as, as, yeah, as a brother, you would. As a mother, but, as a brother, they've both failed. He's, so he's had a smoke. He sees his sister having this ep- mm. uh, anaphylactic shock and he just picks her up, carries her to the car where they are in the middle of nowhere and he tries to drive them to hospital. What's he doing? Ring an ambulance. I suppose sometimes to a certain extent it might be quicker to drive there yourself because it's not beyond the realms of, of reason. And I suppose with the EpiPen, there's... You know, they've got to feel guilty afterwards, haven't they? And I suppose a good way to do that is to show that they both did fail on some level. You know, perhaps some of them more profoundly than others, but everybody's to blame. And it's that guilt that makes things get a bit crazier later on. Yeah, of course, I'm looking for solutions here as to how to survive this situation because that wouldn't, that wouldn't obviously work for the film if everybody just lived because they made the correct decisions all the time. Peter's got his foot down. He's trying to get his sister to hospital. Yeah. His sister's really struggling to breathe. She puts the window down to get some fresh air. She leans her head out of the window. He sees an animal on the road, swerves, and her head collides with the post that had the symbol on it, immediately decapitating her. Yeah. How did you feel about this? As soon as she put her head out of the window, I knew it was coming. Yeah. I didn't think she was going to be fully decapitated. Okay. I thought she was just going to die. Yeah. In a collision. 
So that made it more shocking for me. It also linked me back to what we were talking about in Halloween with damning teens and their terrible driving decisions when high. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and that is a theme that we will look out for more in other horror movies as we continue this journey. And then I absolutely love his reaction, though, where he's just in such shock and so much of a mess of what has happened that he just drives home and goes to bed really slowly and doesn't sleep until his mum then finds the decapitated body of her daughter in the car in the morning. I'm glad you like this because it's one of the reasons I love this film is the instead of so instead of shooting it so that you know we get that reveal of oh there's the girl's head she's been decapitated oh and showing you know Tony Collette's character uh, Annie going and finding the body and seeing that from her perspective what we get instead is so much worse it's as you said that it's relatable and that makes it really painful he can't deal with it it's too horrible so he just disassociates and he just goes home and he goes and gets in bed and then we have that fade to show that time's moved forward but he's still awake he obviously hasn't slept and then in that tight close-up just on his face we hear her find the body screaming and screaming all while looking at his face and then we get the flashback the cut back to the girl's head running on the highway it's horrible you're just in shock at the at the situation i suppose yeah I, I, yeah completely agree i think we, it's a, you really feel for peter i think and having to kind of face it at the same time as him having to hear the reveal happen in the background while you're in the bedroom with him trying not to think about it trying not to face it is yeah i mean it's great because you're let in on a secret it's not a secret but mm. It's a piece of information that you and the character yes. that's being focused on at that moment in time in the film know, and no one else in the film, no other characters know this piece of information yet of what has happened. Yeah. So you are kind of with them waiting for that reveal. Yeah. And Absolutely. it's so effective. And we're actually, fun time for a, a film term. Um, it's what we call focalisation, is the kind of the character's level of, of knowledge. Um like dramatic irony would be an example of what we, we call focalisation in, in film studies. There you go. The pod educating once again. Yeah. My next question, though, is another one which I found a little even stranger than the first incidents where I asked this question, but where the hell are the police? Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. If I had been driving and I had had an accident that had resulted in the decapitation of my sister... Mm-hmm. I feel like the police would want to talk to me. Yeah. And I feel like that I would be offered some level of support yes. to help me deal with that situation. Yeah, that's true. He isn't at all, is he, from what we see? He's just... He just goes to school. Weeping, holding his friend's hand. It's awful. I think one of the things the film does well, this is this is kind of related, is making the setting feel completely remote and isolated. The amount of yeah. shots we get where it's just mountains in the background and maybe two people walking past. That's it. It's everything is, is wide open spaces. And as much as we know intellectually, there are systems like police that do these jobs. I think it's kind of easy to suspend that as you're watching the film, just looking at all of these mountains and these wide open spaces, and you do kind of start to feel that you are just in the middle of nowhere, and there are things that can happen here that might go unnoticed. It's the big house in the woods as well. Yes. And 
the it does create this massive isolation feeling mm. and it's great it works so effectively it's so well made so the relationships in the family are evidently now strained yeah as there's been a lot of death and quite close to home yes with lots of blame attached and it's from this that Annie meets this uh, journey character she immediately notices that this woman's doormat when she goes to her house is very similar to one that her yeah. mother had used to make. Their relationship kind of builds up a little bit and eventually it results in Journey showing her how to do a seance and Journey contacts her grandson. Yeah. Um, so this is the first moment we get definite hello spirits yes. when the glass starts moving and suddenly we've got... We've not got suggestion of spirits being around with, you know, apparitions or little visions of them. We've got spirits moving real life objects in the room. They are here and they are among us. Yeah. Meanwhile, Paul Peter's getting haunted by his sister at this point, hearing she used to do this little clicking noise. And he starts hearing it everywhere. And then he wakes up one moment and he sees Charlie in the corner of his room. This builds up to his mother eventually getting the courage to do a seance in the house, summoning the Charlie's spirit. Before we get into that, I just wanted to mention that uh, horrible scene at the dinner table, because that really bothers me as well, where they're all trying to have a meal. Gabriel Byrne has, uh, has, has made them all a lovely dinner, and she's so angry. She's absolutely livid. Um, and she makes that comment about how he's just going to sit there and, and smirk at her or something like that, and then she has that long diatribe about how it's all his fault, um, and she wishes she could take it away from him, but she can't. He's got to live with what he's done. And at no point does she acknowledge her involvement in it, as we've discussed, it's all about him. She hates him, and she's always hated him. Again, she tried to set him on fire when he was a baby, and she's upset that he resents her for that. There's no self-awareness, but it's not that she hates him because he's you know, I've been involved in this accident and Charlie's Charlie's died. She just hates him. And I think that's really terrifying to have this mother figure. And Tony Collette's performance is incredible. Um, she really makes it feel real and uncomfortable. But yeah, that, that dinner is, it's up there with the Eraserhead dinner scene for me. She also has a moment where she tells him in bed that she tried to get rid of him when she was pregnant oh, and that she gosh. never wanted him. Yes. So we get Peter being haunted, mother does the seance, summons the spirit of Charlie, and we, we mentioned there about the dad making this lovely dinner. And he's just so sick of all this bullshit. I feel so bad for him. <laughs> he's so tired. He's just like, oh, for God's sake, she's at it again. All he wants to do is sit in his office and drink whiskey and read the paper. He's like, can't believe his luck for how he ended up in this situation because all of the suggestions throughout the entire film, the name of the film, Hereditary, mm. is that it's passed down through generation mm. and that it's all Annie's side of the family and he's just can't believe his luck that he's been roped into this <laughs> marriage and this life that he looks at himself going, oh, God. Yeah. And it's a miracle that he's not committed suicide sooner, if it, I'm honest. It really is. I, I find him quite a likeable character. He's completely inept. There are certain, we talked about this before we started recording. There are certainly moments where he could make different decisions, better decisions. But yeah, he's, it's the tiredness that's so relatable. He's just like, I've, I'm sick of this, but I don't 
really know what to do about it. He doesn't at any point try and look after any of his family apart from Peter briefly, where he he shows little inklings of trying to protect him from his mother. But he doesn't intervene when Annie's been sending Charlie off to this party with her son. He's just not around. He's like, I'm not dealing with that shit. That's an argument for mum to have. Yeah. He doesn't look after his wife at any point, really, after the death of her mother, because he's clearly clueless and doesn't know what to do. Yeah. This then continues when his daughter dies, where he shows quite little emotion. Yeah. Not that I'm not saying he's not upset. We're just never focused on him as a main character, but his wife's in absolute bits. Yeah. And he eventually gets to the point where he says he's going to, she needs to get to see a doctor, but I'm I'm like, this has taken you far too long to realize this. Yeah. It did get to the point where I watched this with my girlfriend and she turned to me and said, I hope you'd look after me a little bit better if something <laughs> horrific like this had happened to us. And I said, don't worry. I, I, you know, I would intervene earlier on. I would, you know, make sure there was a, a very supportive network around you at this moment in time. Whereas he just is like, oh, for God's sake, I, I knew this. I knew that something like this would happen. Yeah, now. not a useful man. So Annie decides to do this seance to summon the spirit of Charlie and she shows this to Steve, the dad, and Peter. And Peter's freaked out about this anyway because he's already seen and hearing things. Yeah. And he, she successfully summons Charlie to the room. Annie briefly gets possessed, we presume, by the spirit of Charlie in this moment. Yeah. Where she's really desperate, desperate mother situation at this point. And the great, well, Peter's freaking out, but there's a great moment where the dad then just goes, right, I've had enough of this bollocks, and he just throws a glass of water in her face to bring her back into the room. He's like, come on, wake up, woman. (laughs) But we needed a bit of that earlier. That's the thing. It's all too late for him, isn't it? He's so, he's, he doesn't, he can't be asked. is the truth of it. He knows that he needs to be but he can't be asked. So when he does finally act, it's it's far too late, and he should have done more earlier. At this point, the spirit of Charlie smashes the glass in the uh, cupboard and that, that in the cabinet, and that made me poop myself a little bit. That were a definite red wine moment there. Yeah, that's a big one. So now Annie's starting to freak out a little bit because, you know, she's just been possessed. Yeah. So she goes to Joan for guidance, who's not there, and we, we get another look at the doormat. She kind of realises that it's definitely one that her mother used to make, and we get to see inside the flat. And there's the weird ritual stuff with Peter's pictures in. Um, Annie then finds her mother's body in the loft. There'd been references slightly to this with people coming in the house going, oh, it smells funny in here. I don't know what's going on, but you never get a sight of it. Opens the loft hatch door, loads of flies come down, goes up and has a look, and the severed, uh, the decapitated corpse of her mother is lying in the loft underneath this weird symbol that we've already seen and associate with the mother. Now, and this is when Annie really starts to freak out and she's trying to explain this to her husband and she's got this link that she's used for the seance, which was Charlie's sketchbook. Charlie loved to draw loads of sketches and Annie tries to burn the sketchbook but ends up just having her arms set on fire when she's trying to burn it. So she pulls it out of the fire, stamps it out. She then... Uh, looks up more information about her mother and finds a weird book that's all about this demon called Payman. And this all happens with her on her own. Peter's just gone back to school, you know, 
just murdered your sister, effectively. Just get back in school, dad's straight back at work. Poor Peter. And he gets possessed at school in the classroom where he's looks like he's having an anaphylactic shock. It is horrible because he's completely helpless to it. And again, we already have this image now of Peter being completely isolated and vulnerable. And he just has his head slammed against the desk and he just sits on the floor screaming completely on his own while all of his classmates move very hurriedly away from him. That's the really disturbing part is the fact that he's in class. It's public that this happens adds a layer of terror to it. And also, you know, all of those kids in that room are going to be talking about this moment in therapy for the rest of their lives. Dad's come and picked Peter up from school, driven him home. My favourite bit of this is that he's unconscious on the back seat, clearly has been to some kind of medical aid because he's got a bandage on his nose. Yeah. No hospital's letting you out of hospital if you're unconscious because they have to carry him out of the back seat to put him in bed. That's a good point. But has he been to hospital or is he just like at school still? Just patched up. Again, it would relate then to terrible school and terrible parenting. If you have an unconscious child on the back seat, please take them to hospital. Yeah. (laughs) Top advice from the podcast. If your child is unconscious, (laughs) seek medical help immediately. Yeah. They don't. They just put him in bed and carry on with their day. (laughs) Well, he's breathing all right. And Annie then decides, right, Steve, I'm tired of your bullshit for not getting involved in any of this. I want you to go up into the loft and see the corpse of my mother up there, which is just a bizarre situation to be in. He then does. He sees this corpse, comes down, and he's just disgusted with his wife because his immediate ideology is, you did this, didn't you? Of course you? <laughs> you would think that. We all would. She is yeah. insane. But, I th- yeah, again, we talked about this a little bit before, but I, th- I really relate to him in that moment where she's like, go up in the loft. My mother's decapitated corpse is in there. And he's like, he obviously believes her. He just doesn't want to do it. <laughs> he's like, I know. I'm sure she is. I'm sure you've done it. I don't need that today. <laughs> I'm tired of this bullshit, Annie. Like, it's so trivial. She doesn't ring the police when she's found the corpse of her mother in the loft either. It's just like... Nobody's well, using hospitals or police in this, no. this state. <laughs> that's that sense of isolation, though, I suppose, as well, isn't it? That the state are not going to come and help you at this moment. And I do feel like that in... Um, we've got a couple of mates who live in very kind of middle America. And I guess it's the South. They live in uh, Virginia. And it, it does feel... You feel really unconnected. I don't know if it's just me, but it's because everything's so open. It does feel really remote. You feel really cut off from society. It's uh, it's a funny feeling. It's a big old country, isn't it? Yeah. As well. Big shout out to our listener in Dallas, by the way. If you're still on board, we see you, Dallas. <laughs> Annie now decides that she's going to finally destroy the sketchbook because she's so scared of this possession. And we've seen some sketches in the book change recently. So they changed to being drawings of Peter before Uh Peter was possessed and had his head slammed against a desk. They've now changed to drawings of the dad. But Annie thinks that by burning the book, she's going to die, but at least the book will be killed and the spirit will be killed. The dad has zero interest in any of this. He's just like, we need to get you to see a doctor now, you crazy mad old woman. Like, I've had enough of this bollocks. The fact I've even come home from work today is a miracle. And Annie just grabs the sketchbook, chucks it on the fire, and you know what's going to happen. 
and it does the dad goes up in flames and he's burnt to a crisp we kind of have a bit of a a, a time fade where see the body burn but th- then we get annie being possessed so the spirit goes fully into annie yeah. now Peter wakes up and, and it's night time. Why didn't you turn any lights on, Pete? The classic. He's walking round his house. Just put some bloody lights on, man. He needs to listen to us. He does. If he'd listened to this podcast, he wouldn't be in this situation. No. Get an EpiPen for your sister. Keep the lights on. Stop listening to your mad mother. Yeah. Who doesn't love you. I feel sorry for him, though. Yeah, he's in a that pretty, regard. pretty character. He had no chance. No. But anyway, Peter's now wakes up and we get this great shot. And this is the bit where, first time watching it, I was like, what? As if we've gone down this direction? Because mother's gone full Spider-Man and he's in the top corner of the room looking over his body. Like proper crouched in the corner of the, like top corner of the room hovering. And you're like, oh, we have these kind of powers now, do we? Yeah. But then we get the bit that's just, and I did laugh out loud at this bit. In where Peter gets up and she just floats across the screen out yeah. of the door yeah. sideways. And I was like, well, that was weird. That didn't need to happen. Every time I've seen this, in fact, I've watched it with, uh, with my wife. And she, she did say this time, she was like, I know you love this, but it's really silly when she just floats. I was like, yeah, but it's 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 cool. It's like Evil Dead. She was like, yeah, but Evil Dead's funny. It's like, that's a fair point. <laughs> I don't know why they put it in. I don't know why they did that. They, just, they didn't that. need to yeah. do it at all. They could have just not done it and everyone would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Look, she's up there. Oh, where's she gone? Where's she gone? Oh, no, we've seen a float across, like a yeah. like Casper the fucking friendly ghost floating <laughs> across the room. It's, it's cartoony, but I, I, yeah, I think that absurdity still bothers me, even though it is absurd and it is silly and like a little bit funny. I still think it kind of works on some level. For me, anyway, again, I know it's a subjective thing and it's, it's something to turn a lot of people off. So Pete continues his little wander around the house now and he eventually gets to the living room where he finds his dad extra crispy on the floor. Yeah. And this is where we first see our strange naked gentleman stood in the doorway. And it's Sorry. the same guy from the grandmother's funeral. Yeah. And he's just stood in this dark doorway, bollock naked, just looking at him with a little smile. (laughs) Meanwhile, Annie's in the top left corner of the room, just hovering above. If you were to take that as a screenshot from this film, you would be very confused and not know really where it had come from or what was going on. I think they should have used that as the poster. That'd have been straight in. Then we go for the ultimate jump scare in the film, which has kind of been building up for ages. And it's the one where they go, we need to have a really big jump scare now. So yeah. Annie disappears from that top corner and she just comes straight out of the shadows just yeah. behind Peter to rush him. Instead of running outside to the safety of the outside world, outside Peter, that's where you should be heading, my friend. He runs inside up into the loft, which shuts behind him. Why? You're completely trapped up there, you absolute moron. Yeah, and then he has to jump out the window and die. Anyway, he goes up into the loft where there are three more people, middle-aged white people, just stood in the weird shadows of the room watching him, bollock naked, no reason why, never explained, it just is. His grandmother's corpse has disappeared and instead there is a picture of him. Then his mother, who didn't get into the loft behind him, then appears in the loft. And this was a really disturbing bit that was put in definitely for shock or horror. 
she decapitates herself. And I looked up what it was she uses. She uses a piano string, yeah, a piano anyway. wire, yeah. to cut off her own head while she's staring at him. Yeah, it's horrible. It's just so gruesome. It's so gory. Yeah, it's incomprehensible, isn't it, to imagine doing that to yourself. And the way that she moves is so quick and purposeful. It's horrible. It's just so unnatural. There's no explanation at any point in the film ever for why they have to be decapitated. No, no. Could just be dead, but no, has to be it's got head to be. Off. I suppose it's a ritual, isn't it? They're a cult. Cults have rituals. Yeah. This is a ritual. It seems to be an important an important part of whatever the hell it is that they're trying to do. I mean, we figured out by this point that it is a cult and a, it is a ritual because there's all these weird naked people stood in the shadows of the house just watching Peter. That's how you know you're in a cult. Yeah. R. Kelly read the textbook. <laughs> anyway, Peter goes straight out of the window. It's like third story, I think. Uh, and he, geez, he's dead now on the floor. Yeah. Spirit of this demon thing goes into him, which is visualised by this little blue light. He gets up and then walks up to the treehouse that had been a place where Charlie used to hang out a lot, Charlie's treehouse, climbs up into it with this red light in there and there's this figure of a king that's been built and there's naked people knelt down in rows three deep. It's a lot of balls. A lot of balls. We said before recording that you wouldn't want to be on the third row. Your face right in someone's arse crack as you're kneeling down. And... Peter's now possessed. He, we see him basically getting crowned and at the foot of his uh, model that's been created of the king are uh, decapitated corpses of his sister and mother who are the only ones who are clothed. Peter's clothed. But all yeah. of the worshippers in the satanic ritual are naked. And then we see Joni put the crown on him and welcome the eighth king of hell, King Payman, back to earth in his yeah. vessel. So Peter's basically been prepped as a vessel. Now, if I was a king of hell, if I was a king of hell, I don't know if Peter's the vessel I would go for. He shows no notable strengths or characteristics, apart from being a massive stoner, that make him a suitable vessel for a king of hell. Oh, there's a way, I don't know, they might really like to smoke weed in hell. If I'm to believe the album covers of all of the doom metal I've ever listened to, I'm sure they do. So maybe, maybe it's us that I'm reading it wrong. I think you might be right, yeah. Hell is just filled up with, with stoners. Maybe that's what volcanoes are, you know, when you see all the steam coming up. Maybe <laughs> maybe it's just all the uh, the hotboxing down in hell. I hope so. I'm going to start saluting. Next saluting vol- Every time you see a volcano. <laughs> Good on you guys, keeping it real. Maybe that's the biggest punishment for people that are so against drugs. You know, are still horrible people. They go to hell, but then <laughs> they're just forced to sit in a room full of people hotboxing it all day. And, and that, that's what they... that would be up. Imagine being really uncomfortably stoned in a room with Stalin, Hitler, Myra Hindley, all these absolutely horrible people and you're just stoned out of your tree. That would be awful. <laughs> yeah, it would. It would be horrendous. Michael because... Myers in there with his glasses on. And, and there's no snacks. So, you, yeah. you know, you're peckish, but there's no snacks. And you, all you've got to do is just 
So, uh, but but like Hitler's on speed or something like that. So he's just a cook and he's just wanted to talk to you all the time about his mad ideas. It's like, yeah, but but like if we just build these these camps and uh, uh, that's the solution, that's what we need to do. But he just won't show up and you're like, fuck off, you massive racist twat. But you can't get away from him because you're so stunned that you can't move. Yeah, that's hell. Now we know. So I didn't see the King of Hell move and the cult, the naked cult move coming. I don't know why they were naked. It's never explained at any point in the film. They just are. I imagine all cults are nudist. If you are a member of a nudist cult, get in touch. If you're a member of a cult that wears clothes, also get in touch and tell us why you wear clothes. Why are you going against the grain? Why are you the odd ones out? Yeah, sort your cult out. Right, so that was kind of a sum up of hereditary. If you choose to worship the demon king Payman, eighth king of hell, mm. don't forget to take all your clothes off. Yeah, you'd look like an idiot if you forgot. Horrible stories from the week. Not horrible stories, but creepy stories from the week. I went for a walk up through some woods where I came across. And bear in mind, these woods were, I was using them as an access to get to a public right of way. So I was doing a little sneaky shortcut through some woods. Through some murder woods. So through some murder woods, not a public right of way. Public really have no reason to be up there. I suppose there could be fun as a kid to play up there. Mm. So what find a huge memorial to a dead child? Oh, no. In the middle of the woods. Oh, God. Oh, that's bleak. So I obviously thought that I was in a horror movie at this point. Bad Ben. Thankfully, it was daytime, but I immediately had thoughts of Bad Ben. Yeah. Now, Bad Ben is a film that we are definitely going to review on this. We'll get there. Yeah. Me and Tobes could probably do it just without even watching it because it's it's a classic. But I think it's going to have to be an epic two-parter. It is. It needs to be done properly, efficiently, and we're going to do... We'll do all three, but not much focus on the second one because it's dreadful. It's not good. So Bad Ben has a section in it where a man thinks that the solution to getting rid of the demon that's in his house and spirit that's in his house and is haunting him is to desecrate the grave of a child. Yeah. It doesn't go well, but I immediately got thoughts of that when yeah. I saw this child tomorrow. And I started to act very cagey around it. I was like, I need to be really careful here. I don't want to put a twig out of place. No, you don't want to desecrate that grave. It summons the spirit of the child that's unfortunately lost their life. Yeah. And it just got me thinking of, are there any moments in life where you haven't been in, in immediate danger and there's no reason for you to consider it, but you suddenly thought, oh God, this is a horror movie coming to life. Yes. A few times. So one thing, this this is one thing that always stuck with me was um, when I when I first moved to Japan and I, I finally had one of those wardrobes like you see in the grunge and and the ring yep. where you've got the sliding door and I've never really been scared of specifically the grunge is the one that does all the wardrobe stuff. It never really bothered me, but then suddenly I was living in the room from the grunge and having to sleep in it every night and every single night I was like there's going to be someone coming out of that fucking wardrobe. And I was just waiting for it to happen. And I didn't believe in ghosts. And I remember talking to my mate about it. And I was like, oh, it's so ludicrous. I don't believe in any of that. Why am I, you know, why I'm freaking out at night like an idiot? And then she said, oh yeah, I don't believe in ghosts. 
However, I think it might be real in Japan. I was like, what does that mean? How have you managed to get to that decision? And then I thought, what if she's right? It's like when you watch The Ring for the first time and then you're scared every time you watch TV. <laughs> every time you put a VHS in, this might be your last week on Earth. The wardrobe thing is so rational, though. So my girlfriend will insist that the wardrobe is fully closed uh, on both sides. Mm. There can't be no gaps into the wardrobe because something will inevitably come out of the wardrobe. Not that yeah. anything could come out of our fucking wardrobe because there's that much shit crammed in there. Yeah. That it would basically be a clothes monster. Or you'd hear it well before yeah. anything did come out because it would knock so much shite over. Well, there's all those naked cultists in your wardrobe as well. That would be my technique, by the way. If I did end up in a situation like this, is make the thing that's haunting you think that you're haunting it. <laughs> that's great logic. How do you do that? Immediately take all your clothes off. Whoa. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's not what people normally do when I'm coming in for a little haunting. Yeah. What are you doing here with all your clothes off? I'm like, oh, you don't heard about me and my cult. That's something to you. And then that might scare the shit out of them. That's a good one. I'd, I'd like to think that if something came out of my wardrobe and I was really, really scared, and I'm like, oh my God, it's a thing from the grudge, and it'd get closer to me. And then I'd just see a white sheet and then some nice horn-rimmed glasses. And I'd be like, Michael. If a slasher was coming at me, <laughs> I'd just do a Mike Myers and yeah. recreate his scene where he puts a white sheet over his head. That's it. That's when it. he pretends exactly. to be Bob. And <laughs> it gets ready because it'd just be so confusing. And they do teach this as a genuine self-defense technique as confusion. Yeah. Just ask them a random question. Hey, Ghosty, what did you have for your tea as your last meal? Uh, oh, what did I have for my last meal? Uh, and then get you for out. Bang. Yeah. Sorted. Yeah. Salt and burn. Whatever <laughs> it is that you've got to do. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. So if you do find yourself in a situation in life where you think, oh, God, this could be a horror movie, hmm. potentially take all your clothes off so they think you're yeah. in a cult. Do that first. That's important. Power of the cult, very yeah. important. Or think about horror movies that you've seen. Mm. What does the thing that scares you in that horror movie do that scares you? And see if you can recreate that. Yeah. Advice from the pod. Can you be more scary than the thing that is trying to kill you? Email us at howtosurvivehorrormovies at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at how to survive horror